Mark Winger would send a frantic 911 call to rush police over to the scene of him defending his wife from an unwanted intruder. What would seem like a revenge plot against Donna Winger would thicken into something no one would have suspected. We are your hosts, Helen Allen and Sherry Ferreira. This is The Chalk Line. Good evening, everyone, and the highlights of the news this Thursday. Winger was married to Mark Winger, and the two of them had an infant daughter. daughter. <laughs> My daughter. <laughs> Did you laugh all that? I know. I hate you it. Can't I can't laugh that loud. You just can't. <laughs> the two of them had an infant daughter named Bailey. They were married in 1989, and Mark was offered a job. And the newlyweds settled in Springfield, Illinois. They moved into a nice home in a neighborhood that would be great for Bailey to grow up in. And Donna came from a very close-knit family. So even though she moved to Springfield, she did make a point to like often take visits to see her loved ones in Florida. On August 23rd, 1995, Donna had taken a 90-minute ride home from St. Louis International Airport after a trip from Florida to visit her mother and her stepfather. She was with her infant daughter, Bailey. The driver of the shuttle, um, I guess it was like a shuttle van that was taking her home, his name was Roger Harrington. During the ride, Roger Harrington drove erratically and well over the speed limit, And he also said out loud to Donna that he hears voices telling him to kill people. Okay, so let's unpack that for a bit. Not the ride of your life. No. (laughs) You're not like gonna call. It's definitely not a five star Uber. No, definitely not. I'll just put that out there. Um, Um, It's alarming. I would leave the car immediately. Tuck and roll. Yeah, just cradle my daughter. Yeah, throw the baby. (laughs) She'll be fine. She's better off. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway. um, So, yeah, Donna thought, just like us, that's Mm -hmm. sketchy. Not the the best ride ever. So she, like, documented all of these details and wrote it all down in a letter. Um, And then her and her husband, Mark, reported the incident to the shuttle van company. As they should. Right. Because of this complaint, Roger was subsequently suspended. Now I'm going to skip ahead um, a few days to August 29th. So that happened on August 23rd, and now it's six days later, August 29th. Mark Winger calls the police. Please, my baby's crying. My baby. 
It's a little hard to listen to, so I'm just going to, like, do my best to sum it up. But basically, Mark Winger calls the police um, because there was an intruder in his home. And he has shot the intruder in an attempt to save his wife. Because the intruder has a hammer and is, like, whacking his wife over the head with it. He's beating her. Um, And so Mark shoots him. And on the phone with the police... He mentioned that the guy is making noises and then he has to hang up because his daughter is making noises. So he needs to go tend to his baby. He does make a point to say that he did shoot the man twice. When police arrive, they find Donna Winger face down on the dining room floor. Roger Harrington, the shuttle bus driver, lay a few feet away on his back. So now uh, what Mark told the police is he was on the treadmill uh, when he heard this like commotion upstairs. So he was in the basement and heard like everything going on basically. Yeah. So I guess, I mean, he, from what I know, he just says he heard a commotion. I would assume it's Donna screaming and like maybe a male voice or something. Um, So he runs upstairs and then runs upstairs further to I think his bedroom grabs the pistol runs down to the hallway sees Roger Harrington beating his wife with a hammer and he shoots him so he like blurted out to the police this is the man who has been stalking my wife this is the man who has been harassing my family police ask why Roger would have been there and Mark like has no idea like Mark's like I don't even know how this like would have happened and from the phone call you can tell how frantic and just like, oh it's it's he's falling yeah, apart it's it's definitely a crazy scene so they look into roger harrington and the background check indicates that roger had a history of mental illness and he had even been hospitalized for psychiatric treatment before which would you know further explain him saying that he hears voices yeah. and just his like neurotic behavior um, when he was driving the shuttle bus. Yeah. During that scene, Harrington had used a hammer that was just like on the dining room table. Donna had wanted a picture hung by Mark, so she left the hammer on the table to remind him to hang it which just like when I read that I literally got chills because just think about the fact that like she, I mean, and this is not victim blaming because how the hell would she have known? But like, it's like she gave the murder weapon. You know what I mean? Like if she hadn't put the hammer there, could things have gone differently? It's just so sad to think about. Yeah. Also on the table were cigarettes and a coffee mug, which belonged to Roger Harrington. At this point, 
police are thinking that Roger is mentally ill and seeking revenge for the complaint. And so this is just kind of like a simple case for them to close. They're like, okay, Roger the murderer is mentally ill and he also has the motive because they complained and they made him lose his job. This sounds like he just had... I don't want to say a break, but, like, he was in a delusion, maybe, and just was filled with rage. Right. And, like, with a lot of mental illnesses, I don't know exactly what Roger had, but, like, things just pile on. And we don't know maybe how hard it was for him to get the job in the first place because he had had to be... Oh, my God. So many no, it's okay. <laughs> he had to be hospitalized. Um, for psychiatric treatment before. So I don't know, like maybe this was kind of a difficult job for him to get in the first place and then he loses it. Like these kind of things I think for like even someone who doesn't have a mental illness can just like make anybody, you know, like flip a switch. Yeah. So all these things I think do add up. The investigation comes to a close and, you know, the media also like this is essentially a gold mine for the media because everybody wants to capitalize off after this like noble father who saved the day and like it's just a big deal to them and wasn't he like well known in their community almost like a lot of people knew donna and mark they definitely were not people that like shied away from meeting people they had lots of friends so it just definitely was a big deal at the time for for this community um, and Mark Winger even wrote a letter thanking the community for all of their support. And it's like this long detailed letter about how him and his daughter are very grateful. And, you know, the media eats up wholesome stuff I'm like that. Yeah. I mean, he's a single father now and had this horrific thing happen. He's going right. to be in the light for a while. Exactly. But is a case ever really that simple? Oh my God. So about four years rolls around before things start getting really shaken up here. Roger's family refuses to believe this. His mother says, like, he has no history of violence at all. This just would not be the first thing he ever does. Okay. So they're very thrown off by the whole thing, and they're just, like, advocating for their son. Listen, you guys just, like, took this all at face value. Can we look into it? Like... At the end of the day, if it's him, it's him, but let's be certain, people. Also, by the time four years rolls around, Mark Winger married his daughter's nanny and had three children with her. I'm sorry, what? Yeah, like, I'm not trying okay. to judge. I get it so, that people move on. In different ways, grieve in different ways, but a year? Four years. Well, I don't know exactly. This is within the span of four years he had the three kids. He did move on very soon after with the wife, but... Or with the nanny. I'm well, I mean, not his sure wife now. Were born, yeah. So anyway. Crazy. Yeah, he definitely moved very quickly. He was wasting no time. Then, Deanne Schultz, who is Donna's best friend, she's suffering from depression and even had to be as much as institutionalized. Really? She was given electroconvulsive therapy to treat her depression. Okay, Which so is it was bad. A it lot. was bad. Yeah. So John Schmidt, the prosecutor, says Dan took all of the most extreme courses to get well and nothing worked. But then one day, she tells her doctor, This has been burdening me. This is what I know. After the doctor told her to go to the police, she spoke to detectives. Turns out, she had an affair with Mark Winger prior to and after 
the murder. That's not that's not Donna's best friend. Mm-hmm. We're gonna cut it's that right there. Literally, like what? I'm sorry, what? Apparently, he had planned on marrying Deanne and purchased a ring for it. Mark claims that this is all fake and that she was just mad that they didn't end up getting married. However, hotel receipts and telephone records confirm Deanne's claims of the affair. So now police are like, hmm, maybe this wasn't as easy as we thought. Yeah, like, can can we put in the work today? Can we be can detectives today? Can we do today? the job we have to do? Yeah. Yes. Mark claims to have fired two shots into Roger Harrington, right? Yeah. The neighbor, however, heard about five minutes in between the two shots. Okay. This is... I mean, he doesn't explicitly say in the call that he did them back to back, but you would think that the two shots were like more immediate. I mean, yeah, it's, it's when you're on a scene like that is a long time. Exactly. I mean, my impression was that it was done in like almost a quick succession because mm-hmm. he was so frantic. I would and- think that if he did fire two shots, it was like bam, bam, instead of like bam. Let me pour a cup of coffee five minutes later. Yeah. yeah. Like, it just, it's it's bizarre. Um, and on the 911 call, we'll play it again. 911 emergency, what's your emergency? Help me. My God, my wife's breathing. Okay, you need an ambulance? I need everything. I need everything. Shake the place. Yes, hold me. What's the problem? Uh, oh, I just shot this man in my house. He's inside your house right my now? Killed. He beat my wife. Is he in there right now? Yes, sir. Does he have a gun? Her brains are everywhere. Where's the man at? He's laying on the floor. Is he dead? I don't know. He's making weird sounds. Sir, uh, 20, sir. 20, oh, sir, 20, slow 20, down. Five. I can't understand you. Slow down. Is the man still in your house? Yes, he's laying there on the floor with a bullet in his head. Did you shoot him? Yes, I shot him. He was killing my wife. Please, my baby's crying. My baby's crying. I gotta go. I'll call you right back. Okay, but this doesn't match up at all with what Mark said. Exactly. It becomes impossible for police to understand that he fell backwards like Mark had repeatedly said during interviews. Because if you remember, Mark was saying that he shot him like as he was attacking his wife. Meaning that Mark was behind the intruder and shot him. So if he fell backwards, that would mean that his feet and Donna's feet would probably be closer to each other than their heads. He would have fallen backwards, not forwards. Mm -hmm. 
and Donna would probably not be face down either. Also, it turns out that Mark had filed a multi-million dollar lawsuit against Roger Harrington's company. That's just a little note. Keep that with you. It's important. (laughs) So police now are like, okay, that could be potentially the motive. And we're seeing some sketchiness in the crime scene, some inconsistencies. So they, they start to like question him a little bit further. And Mark tells police, yeah, he ran down the hallway towards the dining room and found Roger Harrington kneeling on the floor, striking his wife with a hammer. Mark then says he shot Roger twice in the head. However, ballistic tests on Mark's pistol show that the shells are ejected backwards and to the right. So like when he shoots the gun, the shell will shoot behind who is shooting it. Yeah. So it won't go in front of him. It won't go to the side. It will go behind him and to the right. The shell casing was found inside the dining room. So if Mark was the one to have shot the gun and he was standing in the hallway... How would it have gotten inside the dining room? There was also evidence that Roger Harrington's body had been moved before the second shot was fired. On the floor, there were two separate pools of blood, a small one and a large one. The smaller one is where they assume that he was shot in the first place. Then he was turned over and shot again and laid there for the longest, so it formed a larger pool of blood. A bullet was in the larger pool of blood. At this point, the police are thinking like, yeah, this is consistent with the neighbor's story of a five-minute gap between the shots. Yeah, because he moved the body. Yeah, he's like fully picking up a grown man and moving him. That's going to take some time. And also... It's probably after the 911 call when he says his baby is making noise. It's actually Roger Harrington. Tom Bevel, a forensic blood spatter analyst, recreated the scene. If Roger Harrington had been striking Donna Winger, traces of Donna's blood would have been on his shirt. The only blood on Roger Harrington's shirt was his own. Mark's story of Roger falling backwards was inconsistent with the physical evidence. His body and height would, like, not have made it possible for him to have fallen backwards and landed where he landed based on what Mark was shooting. I think we have made that very clear at this point, (laughs) but I just really want to drive it home because that is what police are, like, very hung up on. I mean, it's all this evidence that was right there in front of them when they got to the scene and they just decided to completely overlook it for right whatever and like whoever struck donna did so from an entirely different location than the one that mark described but like yes mark described the scene to them but they showed up there so i don't know why they weren't looking at the crime scene photos immediately like as trained detectives you would think that they would just look at the scene double check it like i mean it's, it's madness. When they look into it, when a person is hit with an object, it produces what is called cast of blood spatter. So it casts off in the direction that you're swinging in. The cast off pattern shows that Donna had walked down the hall towards the dining room, stopped, then turned towards the front door as if trying to get away and was attacked from behind. 
Really? So the thing I just feel like is important to mention is that like Donna's fleeing to the front door and she's coming from the hallway. So if Roger Harrington had come in to, let's say, apologize, because I'm pretty sure that's like the story that Mark tried to say is that like he tricked Donna into letting him in because he was going to like apologize for everything or whatever. Yeah. Donna would have already been in the dining room with him. She wouldn't have been coming from the hallway. And... Another thing is, like, maybe she wouldn't have run to the front door because maybe he would have been towards the front door if he had just come in. There's just so many inconsistencies with the fact that there's, like, an intruder here. It sounds more like the killer was, like, well in the house. Yeah. It doesn't sound like... In the hallway area. Exactly. Not the dining room. Exactly. They look further. A single elongated cast-off blood spatter was on Mark's sleeve proving he was closer to donna during the attack than he actually admitted so this makes it more consistent that he was the one delivering the blows further harrington's roommates told police that he got a call from mark to meet him at 4 30. in roger's car police cross-check it and find a note with mark's address and a time to meet at 4 30. So here we are thinking that Roger went out of his way to go to their house, but really, Mark had invited him. He left the door open. Literally. Springfield Police Detective Doug Williamson, he's like the interviewing detective in uh, Mark's trial questioning, was at first really persuaded of Mark's innocence. But his partner, Detective Charlie Cox, said that he became suspicious when Winger first, like, started showing up at the police station. So I guess, like, soon after... Yeah, sorry, that's not very clear, but... (laughs) um, I guess, like, soon after everything went down, he had, like, began... I think this was a few months after the murders occurred. He had began going to the police station. He went by to ask for his gun back, which is Weird. weird because it's, like okay, the one person you feared is supposedly dead, and also your wife is dead. Like, what do you need your gun? Why are you so concerned about having your gun right now, dude? Then, like, on top of that, the two detectives just, like, started becoming pretty serious about thinking, like, he possibly committed the murders. Um, Detective Cox said, I released the gun back to Mark, and we sat and talked for, like, about a half hour. He was wanting to know how the case was going. As far as I was concerned, he should have just accepted that it was closed. So did he think they were like, why would he think that they would still be looking into it if he specifically named Roger as yeah, the killer? I mean, like, put yourself in Mark's shoes. If you didn't do it and you think that Roger did it, why would you think the police would still be investigating it? It's like... Clearly, <sighs> he he has some kind of knowledge here that is more than what the police know because he's trying to dig and make sure that they're not on his scent. Although Mark denies it, the detective also remembered him dropping by a second time to say that he was remarried to his daughter's new nanny, whom he had literally just hired five months after Donna died. It's just very crazy. And the detective's like... He just, like, kept coming in. I kept feeling like he was trying to figure out something and, like, check if we were checking into anything. So sus. Yeah. So he's like, something is wrong here big time. Let's break it down. Evidence shows that Mark did call Roger. Roger shows up, 
walks in with his cigarettes and coffee. Supposedly, Mark was, like, saying that he was going to create a situation where Roger could get his job back and everything would be fine. So baiting him. Yes. Prosecutors believe that Mark brought Roger over to the refrigerator where they kept Donna's note about the shuttle bus company. He then ordered Roger to his knees and fired a single shot into his head. The next door neighbor heard that shot and so did Donna. She turned towards the front door and ran. Mark then ran after her and hit her with a hammer. Then Mark calls 911. During the call, Mark realized Roger was still alive, so he says his baby is crying, but instead turns Roger over and shoots him a second time. The dispatcher calls back moments later, and then the police arrive. Four years later, the case comes to a close, and Mark is charged with the murders of Donna and Roger. The motive was partially financial, um, because Donna had a $200,000 life insurance policy, and the fact that he was also suing Roger's company, like I said. Deanne Schultz told the police that Mark also was, like, trying to leave Donna. Supposedly, she says, quote, As soon as Mark got the story about the trip, he knew that was the guy. As soon as Roger was part of this whole thing and Donna wrote that letter, he knew, like, this is someone I can frame. So he basically jumped on this opportunity to find a way out of his marriage that he could have easily just been like hey I want to separate it's a done deal yeah absolutely like isn't it so much easier to sign a divorce paper than to like bleach your entire house after a murder like (laughs) like I just like don't it's so much less work to just I know and it's even weirder (laughs) that this is like the solution that a lot of I feel like men take in cases like this like there's always a financial trouble there's Mm -hmm. always a want to get out and then they're immediately like I have to get rid of my wife right And I know that, like, a lot of, this is off topic, but a lot of, like, family annihilator cases, most of them are financially driven. Um, Because I feel like people, people get backed into a corner and then they just don't know what else to do. Mark was sentenced to life in prison without parole. Good fucking liar. Right. And Schmidt, the prosecutor... Um, goes on to say, Roger was not a violent individual, not a homicidal maniac, as Mark tried to portray him. He was an individual that, like many Americans, had a mental illness and it was being addressed. And Roger's father, like, spoke about it. It's heartbreaking to listen to him. But he says, and, you know, it's very valid, they cleared his name, but like they said, we buried him a murderer. Which, I mean, is so true. They could never get that moment back. Right. Because in everyone else's mind. The funeral that they went to, I imagine not many people went. I imagine whoever did go had thoughts in the back of their mind and they weren't able to totally just, like, be there and memorialize him. Yeah, like, I just, my heart goes out to those people who didn't have the proper burial for their son that they deserved. So then things get a little bit weirder after Roger is behind bars. Like, even more weird? He's he's in prison. Right. (laughs) Like, what happened? I think this would stop now. But in 2006... When he is a 48-year-old man, he was actually indicted for attempting to hire a fellow prisoner to commit another murder for him. Oh, my God. 
What he is wrong with you? Allegedly tried to solicit a Pontiac prison inmate, Terry Hubble, who was then 44, to arrange the murders of Deanne Schultz, the girlfriend and mistress at the time of Donna's death, and just like a childhood friend, Jeffrey Gelman, who's like a wealthy real estate developer living in Florida at the time. Okay, throw in like the mailman too. What is this list? I know, like... Like, I tried to look into this, and, like, all I could find is that, like, Mark had allegedly felt that he had slighted him. And I'm like, okay, cool, so murder him. Like, what? The The plot, like, originally involved having um, the inmate um, who was, at the time, serving natural life for the 1983 murder of a 14-year-old girl. So he's a real winner here. Okay. Um, He was going to arrange for a hitman to kidnap... Gelman, the childhood friend, and that I guess like what happened was like Roger reached out to Gelman and like asked him to put up his one million dollar bail, and Gelman was like, um, yeah, <laughs> about that. I'm not gonna do that because I think you killed your wife. Like he just literally was like, yeah, that doesn't sound like something I feel like doing for you. That's a lot of money when I think you killed your wife. <laughs> so then when he wouldn't post this bail. He was like, well, then I need a ransom in exchange for not harming what? your family. And it's just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, get- the guy gets a little taste of the crime. Like, he, he's in prison for a day and, and he's like, trying just to. Just pick up a hobby oh and do prison like normal people. <laughs> right. Write an angry letter. <laughs> like, literally. As time progressed, instead of this like ransom plot, it just changed to like murder the childhood friend and Deanne Schultz, the mistress. They just like both testified against him for this murder for higher trial and it just like Good. screwed him even more so the fallout of the plot resulted in a conviction in june 2007 for solicitation to commit murder and he was found guilty and he was given a 35 year sentence on top of the life without parole that he already had beautiful beautiful yeah I just wanted to note this. It's totally unimportant, but while he was in prison, he tried to, like, make the most of his time by forming, like, a legal fight over where he could exercise. What? Yeah. It's just, like, I found this, like, very extensive article on it, (laughs) and there's, like, a full trial. It's crazy. Basically, what happened is, I mean, he, he spends, like, I'm pretty sure, like, 23 hours in his cell of the day, but and so he's, like... Guys, it's really hard to do sit-ups on my bed, and the floor's a little bit dirty. I don't want to do push-ups on them. God. And, like, that's that's the argument. He alleged that forcing him to stay in his concrete-walled bachelor pad is the oh way that the article put it. Um, was con- like constituted cruel and unusual punishment in violation of the Eighth Amendment. Um, I also saw that audio tapes captured Mark complaining about being ill from a meat sandwich. So prison is going well. Good. (laughs) I hope it continues to go beautifully. Yeah. Just the way it is. Thanks for listening. You can follow us on Instagram at the Chalkline Pod. Twitter at the Chalkline Pod. Or you can check us out on our website. The link is in our Instagram bio. Tune in next Thursday for another story. (laughs) 